0: Cheaper than our producer's underage system. Edgier than the stuff shown on late night television. Newer than Kim Kardashian's X. Live from Orlando,
1: it's Crazy Train Radio. Being recorded. Hey, folks. Uh, got another great interview on the, on the line right now. Uh, just recently came out with a book. Uh, best way to describe it. Title is Animal, to, about George the Animal Steel. You got myself, your host, The Croc, along with producer, the cult classic, Jake Steele, And we got George the Animal Steel on the line itself. George, how you doing?
2: Hey, you! Hey, George, is there any chance we could talk to Mr. Myers? Hey, just a minute. Okay. Yes, hello. Hi, Jim, yes. how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How's life in Florida for you?
0: Uh, love it here.
2: I can't complain.
0: Well, like I said, uh, we actually just There's finished up reading your There's two people using this book. body, so let's not be confusing. There's two people oh. using this body. You were talking to George. Now you're talking to the other guy that's been here for uh, 76 years. George has only been there for 46 years. And now you're talking to Jim Myers, who also is well, George the Animal Steel <laughs> in his crazy days. Yes. Well, I'm happy to be speaking with uh, Jim Myers
1: right now, who was, obviously, George the Animal Steel. So first and foremost about the book. What why now? What made you say I wanna put this book
0: out and put my story out there? Well, a lot of guys have written books, a lot of wrestlers and other people. When years old, I've pretty much lived my life, so I'm telling about my I mean, uh, you know, come on. It's at the end of the time, this is my swan song type thing. I had a great run. I was a uh uh a crazy wrestler that uh, loved the business but never watched it until I became a wrestler. Then I was a, I was a football coach and wrestling coach for 25 years and wrestled part-time, but became pretty well-known worldwide. It's crazy how it worked. God was in control, I'm sure.
1: Oh, yes. And uh, part of the – towards the end of the book, obviously, uh, and don't want to spoil your, uh, your uh, way down the yellow brick road there, but religion has actually played a big part of your life the past several years,
0: I guess 10 six years or so, correct? I think everybody should write every you and your buddy there, because uh, when you get old enough, you can look at your your life through a rearview mirror, and you can see where God was touching it even before you recognized Him. He knew who you were, and it's just amazing how it how it how vivid it comes, as I look back at it now, writing this book. Uh, you know, I started I started out uh, in elementary school being very dyslexic, had a hard time reading and writing. Kids made fun of me. Uh, because I was a big kid, my dad had lost his eye in a fight. He told me never to get in a fight. Uh, so uh, uh, kids would pick on me, and instead of re- responding, I'd go home crying. Finally, one day, my mother had had enough. She said, okay, Jimmy, you're going to fight. And she made me fight. It was I was reluctant, and she took me to the playground. Here's Jimmy. He used to fight, and the kids all came running because they figured I'd start crying and run. But the handcuffs were taken off, so I, uh, the first guy there was Mickey Fulton. He took a pretty good lick, and the next one Billy Hinton, and before long he looked around the other kids just kind of dwindled away, and that was my first success in life was fighting. Uh, so still struggling with the dyslexia, I'm talking in the 50s and 40s before they knew what it was. And then I go into high school, I still got the same problem, and they don't know what to do with me, the teachers or the administration, so they send me to the gym every day. Guess what? I become a pretty good a- athlete. <laughs> so. I end up going to Michigan State. I'm nowhere near near you know, qualified, but somehow I get through there. My side all the way. We've been married 58 years, which is another amazing thing that God had to put in my place. And then I come out and I coach for 25 years, wrestle part-time, but main events in Madison Square Gardens, Boston Gardens, Philadelphia. I mean, every major I, mean, I was at main events with Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales and later on, uh, uh, Bobby Backlund, and even later on, in my uh, retirement, almost uh, I wrestled a time. times. So yeah, it was quite a crazy run. Well, obviously, you mentioned about, uh, and I
1: in the book it mentions about you being a very uh, good family man. Like you said, you you've been married for fifty eight years, three grown kids at this point. Uh, how was that life on the road during the summer for you with uh, three kids?
0: Well, it wasn't on the road, I, you know, I was a school, coach. I only wrestled two and a half months out of the year, was a part-time wrestler, I left a lot yeah. of money on the table to go back and teach and coach, which is what I love doing. Uh, the reason I started wrestling, I never watched it, I was not a fan, and that doesn't mean I didn't learn to love it, but uh, I was looking for a job, I was making $4,300 a year teaching and coaching, I'm a football guy, my knees are pretty well blown out, so that's out of the picture. And I'm looking for a, job, a part-time job uh, to uh, help my, my teaching income of $4,300. And I'm looking for a job as a bouncer. So I take a friend of mine with me, Dave Pierce. And Dave is a huge wrestling fan. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm not being hired because I'm drinking beer and I've got a buddy with me. Not a good way to <laughs> look for a job as a bouncer. And he talks to me to call him Bert Ruby, the local promoter. I wake him up. He invites me over the next day. He's one look at me, it's beautiful, I know what I look like, so they didn't ride too well. Anyhow, he started talking about me wrestling in the area. I didn't want to wrestle as Jim Myers because of the coachings. They put a mask on me, and I wrestled as a student for about six or seven years. And it, was, it got pretty successful at that. Then uh, Bruno Sammartino, then the WWF champion, came to Detroit to wrestle Bulldog Brower. They spotted me and invited me to Pittsburgh had a short run with Bruno where we started selling a lot of tickets. It's quite an experience. And then the next year I was invited to go to the, the WWWF, the whole Northeast, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, so on and so forth. And we had a couple of three great runs there. So then it became an annual event. And at that time, I was doing my own interviews, very articulate. I wasn't doing it. <laughs> my own interviews. And the people started calling me an animal. And then uh, one day Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, said to me, uh, you're making too much money, uh, sense for a, an animal, which kind of irritated me because at that time I think uh, uh, Freddie Blassie was managing me and we were both talking intelligently. So from that I went, oh, <laughs> he said, that's what I want. So I became the cartoon character, which was a great way to finish my run, from being a, one of the wildest, nastiest, meanest history of the business to a lovable cartoon character. That's it. Well, obviously, no, sorry about that. Well, obviously you mentioned there, and it's throughout
1: your book that you talk about your battle with dyslexia. Uh, yeah. Obviously, like you said, going through school at the ta- those times, people didn't know what the, dyslexia was. W- with your case specifically, when would you say people go, ah, that, that may be the issue, because obviously you went on to have a good education to become a teacher and coach and everything else that you've mentioned?
0: Okay. A lot of it was by accident, my enrollment officer at Michigan State recognized that I had pretty good intelligence, I just had a hard time, you know, cycling through it, so he set it up for me to take a lot of my orally. And it, they still didn't know much about uh, dyslexia, but there's, it started to, you know, get some light on it. And uh, what they have found out since that the people with uh, dyslexia has great memory. I, like, I look at it as if God takes something away from you, he gives you something else uh, to replace it. In my case, it was a great memory. So I could recite uh, whatever was taught in the class. So I took a lot of my tests orally rather than written. And that really helped me to get through Michigan State. Plus, I had a lot of other challenges. I was the character uh, certainly not uh, designed to go to college at the time. Somehow, I got through. There you go. And your wife also taught, correct? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah, she taught for about seven years, eight years. Uh, She did not start teaching and, 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 and in fact, didn't go to college until our children started going to at least grade school because we wanted her to be home for them when they came home and and when they'd be growing up. But once they started going to school full-time, then she uh, filled in and got her college education. She taught six or seven, eight years. She was excellent with the kids. It was a good thing. Jake, I think you said you had a question as
2: well.
1: Uh, yeah, one thing I've always wondered was, how did you ever get that role as Tor Johnson
2: in the movie Ed Wood?
0: Because I'm an outstanding actor, <laughs> not really, because I looked just like Tor, I was about three inches shorter than him, but I I just like him and, and Tim Burton was looking for somebody that looked the part, and that, that I I did, and then it was easy to play the role because Tor did not do a whole lot, and wow. uh, it was just, a, a, again. Who would ever thought I was going to be in the movies? Come on! But that worked out pretty good. And now, do you have
1: any other uh, filmography roles? Anything else on television wise that separates from your wrestling persona?
0: I've been two or three movies. Uh, Most of them are just you know nothing. Uh, Ed Wood was a big one. Uh, You guys, uh, some of your fans are in Rochester, New York. Yes, sir.
2: Huh?
0: Rochester, the old war memorial. Boy, if that, if that building could talk, I, I'll tell you, it would be scary. But I'm going to be there, and we'll be in Rochester, New York, uh, at 7 p.m. on the 27th of July with, with a book signing at Barnes & Noble. So that'll be fun. I'll get to see some of, the, see some of my friends from the past that rocked and rolled in the, uh, in the uh, old arena.
1: Well, I'll make sure I'll stop by and see you. Well, uh, speaking of which, you mentioned, since Jake brought up about the movie role in Ed Wood, uh in the book, you mentioned about a particular story with uh one of the promo videos. You said sent Tim Burton uh, with oh. you and Harvey Weippleman.
0: Well, yeah, what exactly managing, did you send him? Harvey was managing some guys at about seven seven foot six, giant or I forget his name. Giant Dallas, so yeah, yeah. And so what we did was I was producing at that time. I was an agent with the uh, with the uh, wrestler, with the wrestling with the WWF. And I was producing some interviews, so they wanted something. So I uh, I went in. I was like I was doing an interview. My name is da da da, and I had uh, Harvey Wilmotman come in with a uh, with a package, and he told me it was from uh, Federal Express. Federal Express here. you got a sign here. you got a sign here. He's messing up messing up my interview. So I kind of shoved him aside, not hard. He said, "Get out of here! I'm doing an interview," and behind me the giant. And I went, "Hey, Tim." You take over here, Tim Burton. You take over here. I sent that to him. And, you know, you don't send that kind of stuff to Hollywood, but I did, and got the job. But yeah, when you were talking about that whole movie
2: experience,
1: it when you think the one line that really stood out was when you when you're wrapping it all up and says, "Who can go live the Hollywood lifestyle for a few months, then go back to my regular uh, regular old life? You know, back to my wife, donor movies and." Yes, I still had to pay for the popcorn and soda pop. Right. Yeah, but uh, let's get back into the wrestling a little bit, if we can, Julie, or Jim. Sure. Uh, you you uh, were mentioned earlier uh, as we were talking about Bruno. Uh, yeah. What, was, what did that mean to you about a Bruno, uh, somebody so huge in the industry, tapping you on the shoulder and said, "Come on, I see something with you," and now all these years later. Bruno finally accepting the Hall of Fame inv- invitation.
0: Well, I just uh, I, I felt very blessed that I had a, had the runs that I had with Bruno Sammartino. You know, we went all through the Northeast for probably eight, seven or eight years every summer. I mean, it was my summer vacation, just about, about every third summer I wouldn't go out there. But it was a great run, and Bruno, I think, was a great champion. And if, if he opted to not be in the, the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame or the WWE Hall of Fame, that was his choice. I respect it. When he decided to go in, I respect that. That's his choice. Uh, it, it's just a—it's just a, a great, great memory from the past. That's all.
2: Understandable because we
1: actually spoke with Bruno uh, probably about three weeks out before he went into the Hall of Fame and talked about a class, class man. And oh, absolutely! My I've respect
2: in a world for him. That's right. Yeah, you don't see too many people like it, and and not a uh, ilk anymore. But, uh, uh, yeah, obviously. Uh, another guy you mention a lot
1: in the book that was a character of all characters was Captain Lou Albano.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, what can you tell us about ca- the uh, good old Captain there who's no
0: longer with us? Captain was just a, uh, you know, he was a great wrestler, you know, him and uh, Tony Altamore's Cecilia in a tag team. When he became a manager, he was outstanding on TV. Sometimes it was a struggle with him because if you're doing something in the ring as a wrestler and somebody's doing something else on the outside that attracts the attention, the way we used to wrestle, it makes it pretty tough because you're trying to tell a storyline and use some psychology. So sometimes he made it a little bit rough uh, during the arena, but he he was a blast on television and enough of a blast to get past whatever happened in in the arena. So it was good. He was great. Well, in the, the Heaton, well right. in the
1: words of Bobby Heaton, Well, in the words of Bobby Heenan, Captain Lou maybe had the rubber bands on too tight. At times. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, you actually mentioned about uh, Captain Lou's tag team partner, and I don't want to keep giving away the whole story in the book. But you actually mentioned uh, when you were on the road uh, with the WWF, and they were Lou was in that tag team, how they decided to treat you for lunch all summer long. Only the
0: hand Wasn't you and receipts. What what a what a great guys! All summer long, my first summer there, because I was their guest, every day they bought my lunch. They didn't let me buy the gas. That's good, but they bought my lunch. I thought that was pretty nice of them. Still do. <laughs>
2: uh, well, uh, how much uh, invo- or How much do you
1: actually pay attention currently uh, to the current products?
0: You know, I get that, that asset all the time, and uh, it's it's a totally different business than I was in. We were in, in the we, we use television as a promotion to sell the arena shows. They use television to sell television now and pay-per-views. So it's a totally different. They do in the ring is totally different than what we did. I watch it. I I, I tape it. I watch it. Uh, I watch most of all their shows. I don't watch the whole show, and I don't watch a lot of the wrestling because it's uh, pretty much choreographed. We, you know, people say, well. Things are different when you – it was different in this way only. We knew who was going to win when we went in the ring. Our, our matches were predetermined. But we did not know how we were going to get to the finish. And usually it took 30, 35 minutes to get there using crowd psychology and the heel getting heat, babyface making little comebacks and stuff like that. That's all lost now. With all that said, and everybody's waiting for me to knock today's wrestling, I can't do that. They are the greatest athletes of all time. There's no way that I could have got on the top rope and done a triple zammy and landed on somebody without killing them and me both. So uh, I respect their their athletic ability. Uh, the difference, and you know, everybody says the old school had its deal. The difference is honestly and very simple. We were very, very tough. It was a lot tougher, just tougher people. And um, the show was a
2: different kind of show. Okay, Quiddy, what's your next question, sir? Uh, so George. I was wondering, you still carry that
1: stuffed animal mine around,
0: or did you? Give <laughs> no, no, no. He made the cover of the mega of, of the book.
2: Really? He's
0: on the cover of the book. Mind dolls, and I'm, you know, with all this stuff going on right now, I'm just going to leave them. in.
1: Well, whose idea? Speaking of that, uh, the stuffed animal. Whose idea was that
0: to uh take well, them
1: on board? It was kind of a multiple
0: thing. It was kind of a multiple thing. We were. Me and my wife were in Alabama somewhere, it's in Hillbilly Jim, within the room next to us in a hotel. He said, come and see my roommate. So I went over and he had a, had an unstuffed Earl the Cat. It's this unstuffed, stuffed animal. And it's just flat like a car ran over it and the eyes are crossed, the tails bent and so on and so forth. And I said, let me use that, let me use that. So I took it. And that night, I mean Gene Okerlund, and uh, one of my, you know, cartoon interviews. And he said, who are you And I go, Earl! Earl! And everything you would say, I go, Earl, Earl. At the end, I pulled up this by the tail, this dead cat, and tried to crack it meanly enough, which I did. When Vince said that, he he said, Jim, what in the world are you doing? Why are we selling some, some product? Why don't you develop your own tool? So I developed the Mind Doll, uh, Velcro on the hands, and uh, it became uh, <laughs> my my tag team partner. It got so that back then, you know, doing my character was so strange that. The action picture would hang on the ropes they would swing around when people finally they'd get mad at me. If they kick the mind doll, and I'd act like they kicked me, then I beat them up and let them when we wanted I'd let them raise the mind doll's hand so we we told we sold it a ton of them trucks loads of them but just that was just as I was getting sick with crohns and my my criminal my career was winding down. We didn't know it at the time, but age wise I was ready but the it took the health to to knock me out of the out of the business. Speaking of that health, how
1: are you doing today, health-wise?
0: Well, there's no cure for Crohn's. It's a deathly, uh, they told me 24 years ago that I had six months to live. That's when I moved to Florida, spent my last days on the beach. Uh, and along the process, that's uh, when my shirt shopping, that's in the book. And uh, in 2002, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Ten years after I was supposed to be dead, and this, I'm still alive. And you ask me why I wrote the book, me yet we had to finish we had to finish life before we could finish the book. So uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, a neat thing. Uh, I think that gives it a lot of depth. The book is being very well received. Uh, I had a fellow, uh, one of the sports writers where I used to coach, that helped me write it, and it's just it's it's, it's getting it's blowing off the shelves. They tell me. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's it's an honest story. It tells about how everything affected me and uh, how blessed I've been. Well, I actually I, really I, have... let, me, let me let me tell you about the coaching. Uh, okay, go the ahead. wrestling the wrestling made me as I grew as a professional wrestler. You know, was tremendous for my self confidence, and it, it really was key to me becoming. Wrestle coach. So the the success in wrestling, you know, with all the with all the problems, of the learning the disabilities and everything else, the success in wrestling made me a better person, and it it opened me up to a lot of things. So, uh, pro wrestling did an awful lot for me and my family. Well well,
2: since you said
1: that, is there any specific instance that you can think of that you go, "Wow," as far as your
0: confidence or a specific game or anything that no you no, go just think back and go, like, "Wow." Life, life in general. If I look back at my uh, life and it is a wow. Going through it, it was a struggle.
2: But looking back now, you could say, hey, job well done, right? Say wow. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, God.
1: Uh, I only have particularly one more question for you because you mentioned it there with the changes in the business, such as from yeah. when you started to what it is today. Uh, obviously, like you said, a lot of things have, co- have been choreographed match-wise and everything else. Do you think people can uh, turn well, within the industry can turn back their time to where guys can learn to listen to their crowd and just go with a finish and no, give I the people what days, they want?
0: I, I think those days are over. It's a totally different business. Uh, I think Vince McMahon Jr. has been a genius in guiding it through that era and into where it's at now. It's a billion-dollar business. Uh, it's more like the circus coming to town. Uh, Madison Square Garden's in New York. I think they go in there now two or three times a year. The circus used to do that. Now, uh, you know, uh, when I was wrestling, with Bruno Sammartino and I would wrestle in there every three three weeks. They had a show in Madison Square Garden. So you're talking eleven shows a year. Uh, they couldn't do that now because it's more—it's not about the talent as much as it is the label. Uh, WWE is what sells tickets, not necessarily individuals. In it's, it's a great marketing strategy. It really is. Uh, you've seen guys leave the WWF now E and go to the WCW a few years back. And Vince, being a brilliant guy that he is, made himself the top heel in the business. He, he got involved and started doing a little bit of the ring stuff himself. So if somebody left to go to another company for a couple million dollars, when he would go to the ring, they'd they forget that person, whoever it was, very quickly. And and uh, the WWF, and now he just continued to march on strong. Jake, do you have anything you'd like to ask?
2: Uh, yeah, George, if you were to pick one opponent
1: uh, throughout your whole career, who do you think the best one that you worked well with?
2: whether it be like Ricky or Randy or even the Shaker, Nikolai.
0: Number one would probably be Bruno. Number two would probably be Bobby Backlund. Number three would probably be Randy Savage, and the list goes on and on. I had an opportunity to work with all the top people in the industry over the years. Dr. Bill Miller go way back when. A guy by the name you don't even know him, but Leap and Larry Shane is one of the best wrestlers i was ever in the ring with. Crusher Cortez, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. But back in the territory days, a lot of these guys were just in the Michigan area when I was breaking in. They were outstanding athletes and wrestlers, but they were also uh, family people. They weren't looking to go on the road. So to name one outstanding, you know what? It's easier to talk about who who I didn't like to be in the ring with, and that was somebody that didn't know what the heck they were doing. And did you come across a lot of those guys uh, yourself? Not a lot of them. Not a lot of them. Usually it was on the TV performance. and. There was one guy in a five-minute match. I threw him over the top rope seventeen times. Told him he didn't belong in the ring with me. <laughs> so. hey, and I
1: actually remember. Uh, listen, I was as I was doing my research and reading the book and everything. I do remember you specifically mentioning doing an interview where you uh, where one person in the ring with you would try to put you in a headlock and really try to break your
0: neck. What was that all about? That was when I first broke and then this fella, uh, I was under the mask, I was a student, I'd only been in the business about 8 or nine years And uh, he brought a bunch of bananas trying to be funny He'd had a couple of drinks, I think, slowed in was the problem. And his girlfriend uh, had put these bananas, and when I say a bunch, I'm talking maybe 100, 120 bananas in a big large bunch. And he brought it out like I was a monkey trying to be funny because I had a lot of hair in my body. In the rain, what am I going to do with it? So I give him a banana bath, which made him mad. The whole thing got really screwed up. And then when we started to lock up, he took my head and tried to break my neck. And I uh, went through his legs and made a soprano out of him. And then he tried it the second time, and I made a soprano out of him again. And then uh, the second time he told me that it was time to put an end to this. So I, 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 I. It was a terrible professional match, but I beat the tar out of him. That was the end of his career.
1: <laughs> yeah, because. Uh- Further in the story that you ended up uh or not just you, but the rest of our locker room had seen what was going on and ended up tossing
0: him out on the street pretty much. Out in the snow with his with his uh suitcase and all of his clothes. Yeah, he didn't belong in the room with men. Yeah, because like you said, everybody was out there to he try to make in a the living the After he got beat up, you know, in, in the ring he came in and started screaming at the promoter who had, had just had a heart attack, Bert Ruby, who had <laughs> and, uh, Cruiser Cortez had had enough of that, but boom, his career was over. Yeah, unfortunately,
2: there's plenty of people that didn't uh, want to follow the business or
1: follow the code of ethics. In well, the you got to respect if
0: any any time you're in the ring. I don't care what what's going on, who you are. If you don't respect your opponent, you deserve to be up. And that's the way the business yep. is. That's the way it has always been. Uh, Kate Babe was ran by the wrestlers, not by the promoters. And, you know, we were all we were all independent contractors. So if somebody did something that was a, a scar on our business, <laughs> you got a scar on him.
2: Yeah. Well, speaking of independent
0: contractors, and, and
1: honestly, this is the last question for me. When you went to become an agent, were you still considered an independent contractor? or Were you somebody actually a full time employee by the company?
0: I was not on. I was not on contract. Therefore, I was a a, uh, a contractor. Okay. See, well, Ken Myers. Oh, sorry. When when the WWF took over and became a corporate giving out contracts, that's when KF died. Because they're working for themselves, they're working for the for the office, and the respect of the business changed a little bit. And that's just human nature.
1: Yeah, things evolve over the years.
0: Well, honestly,
1: honestly, it's been a true pleasure to speak with you, Jim Myers, Uh, George the Animal Steel. He's got the book out now. Like he said, it's been flying off the shelves. The book's called Animal, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, all kinds of uh, stores. Thank you so much for taking a half hour out of your day, and enjoy Florida down there.
0: Well, thank you very much, guys, and God bless you. Have a great day. You too.
2: Bye-bye.